Unfortunately, these words and these single issue attempts are going to fail. They end up feeding into this system by not questioning it and by not taking a clear systemic alternative path. There's so much happening at the grassroots in what I call, you know, sort of a worldwide bottom-up localization movement that is so exciting and so healing. You'll see a pattern that the globalizing path is imposing monoculture and it's, it's deadly, it's deadly. It's, it's linked to a knowledge system that does not recognize that we are the comings rather than beings. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today we're very excited to have our guest, Helena Norberg-Hodge, on the show. Helena is a linguist, author, and filmmaker. She's the founder and director of the international nonprofit organization, Local Futures, and a pioneer of the new economy movement and the convener of World Localization Day. She's the author of several books, including Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh, together with a film of the same title, Ancient Futures has been translated into more than 40 languages and sold over half a million copies. Helena has helped to initiate localization movements on every continent, particularly in South Korea and Japan, and she co-founded both the International Forum on Globalization and the Global Eco Village Network. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the Wright Livelihood Award, the Arthur Morgan Award, and the Goy Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. And I'm so excited to have this conversation because Helena brings in so many different perspectives in terms of how we can build a community at a local level, but also building those fields of networks at a global level. She speaks quite a bit about thinking about education as more than just something that is siloed, but education as part of the greater system and how we need to zoom out to see the greater system, to understand its different components, to zoom back into education, to see how it fits within the living system that is our society and the world. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to your comments and I will leave space for my conversation with Helena. Well, hello, Helena. We're really excited to have you on the show uh, and explore some of the issues that we've been talking about on the Coconut Thinking Podcast and in our writing uh, and really get a feel from you uh, about how your work connects with not just schools, but learning, learning as something that's intergenerational and learning that contributes to uh, the well-being and thriving of, of, of all life, uh, and that includes our local communities. Before we go into that, I'd like to ask you a question uh, that we leave open, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, I will say, first of all, I'm Helena Norberg-Hodge, and I'm a, a very globalized individual who grew up primarily in Sweden, but have lived in several countries and above all, in this remote Tibetan culture of Ladakh, and that uh, shaped my thinking a lot. And I have ever since I had these very international experiences, as well as deep learning in this ancient nature-based culture of Ladakh, my mission is to try to get a different 
a different view of the world um, out there, and it's a view that differs fundamentally from the dominant narrative, which I see being imposed worldwide. We're, we're living now in a world where virtually every child is being shaped essentially by a for-profit consumer culture, and that consumer culture destroys individualism, um, both individual individualism and cultural diversity, and it's linked to massive environmental and ecological destruction. So my work is all about changing worldviews to encourage a shift in the direction of precisely what you're talking about. I like to term the healthfulness of the planet. I often talk about it as being about both human and ecological well-being, and they're intimately connected. I will ask you the question we ask all our guests. We get different answers every time, and that is, how do you define learning? I define learning as a process of continued expansion in terms of understanding skills um, and an expanding heart in, in terms of developing deeper empathy and, and skills for, for, for deep empathy, sharing, caring, nurturing. And I, my lesson in this ancient culture was that people learned their entire lives. They also taught their entire lives. Already by the age of one or two, they were teaching younger siblings. And so there was a caring and nurturing and teaching going on uh, and learning going on in your entire life. It's interesting you say that. We had, uh, at the end of the last season, a guest uh, from Hawaii who uh, was at the Department of Education and was really putting um, Hawaiian First Nations culture back into the curriculum. And she mentioned that the concept of learning doesn't exist in itself. Teaching and learning are one word. That's a dynamic process, no matter what the age. Did you find the same in Tibet? Oh, well, actually, yes, very similar. Very similar. Uh, uh, yeah. It was essentially the same word, and but again, the context showed whether you were talking about teaching or learning. But I think the important thing was that in in the in the language, it would be clear whether the person was actually, as it were, imparting knowledge, information, skills, or picking them up. So uh, I think the really big lesson for me was that that you do not stop learning and that you that you're increasing wisdom about life and that means about the thriving of life the continuation of life that that increased learning uh goes on for your entire life and that's and that's respected and valued and recognized by the culture. I'm gonna ask you a question about what you mentioned a minute ago, which is that the education system, um, the dominant narrative uh, shapes that shaped for profit and a consumer culture destroys individualism. Now in schools, there's a lot of talk about student-centered learning, about how there's holistic learning. And the, the narrative actually is that we focus more on the individual, that we let you know, students be individuals. What's the contradiction and how can we look at this through a different perspective to say, actually, by individualizing, you're, you're commodifying? Yeah. Well, this is 
it's very, very difficult because I believe that an essential step is to take a big pause, a big deep breath and and look at a dominant system which we are not trained to see. No one is educated to look at it. And so there it's we all have a vague understanding that global corporations have too much power. And in fact, I think most people on the planet now would agree that they have too much power. But the extent to which an interlinked system of giant businesses and corporations have been shaping the direction of education, the direction of schooling, and the role of the the global media, the mobile phone, I mean, starting with television, but all the global media, the extent to which they have been shaping the narrative, shaping identity, uh, is something that we really need to study. And then it becomes very clear that if we do not identify that force and it's both its drivers and its impact, we are continuously just, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, dreaming of a different and better world and assuming that we're doing the right thing with a lot of nice words about everything from participative learning to student-centered to holistic to regenerative, and unfortunately, these words and these single issue attempts are going to fail. They end up feeding into this system by not questioning it and by not taking a clear systemic alternative path. And that has fundamental characteristics that are the opposite of the systemic uh, you know, commercial system that is now shaping so-called democracy, shaping the media, shaping every avenue of knowledge. And I just want to say, you know, having said that big thing, that the biggest issue, as I see it, is that people don't want to look at it because they feel either that it's so big and so powerful that we can't change it. So what's the point of even thinking about it? Or they feel that, that yeah, basically they, they feel that, it can't be changed. And so there's a certain sort of fatalism, but it's essentially, I would argue, born of ignorance. It's born of the reluctance to look at it. It's born of a reluctance to look at it, which then means that people are not looking at the fact that there are fewer and fewer advocates of that system. There are fewer and fewer drivers, and they actually constitute less than a percent of the entire global population. So it's really crazy, our unwillingness to look at it. And, and I would argue to look at it without demonizing. Looking at this system means looking at it as a system, not identifying certain individuals as evil. For instance, now Bill Gates or um, some of the other more visible players. Um, but really understanding that this as a system and how we have often, through schooling and through many other things that we thought of as very positive, we've actually supported the growth and the strengthening of that system. And you bring up a, a point that uh, about the dominant narrative. And even within the dominant narrative, there is still maybe a little uh, section called the alternate narrative, but it still reinforces the dominant narrative I just mentioned. And I'm thinking about a lot of progressive educators who talk about the need to prepare for 21st century skills, like 
creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, which I don't know when the 21st century appropriated those skills as if critical thinking didn't exist before, you know, 2001. But, and, and, and they point to, for instance, these are what are going to be needed. These competencies are what are going to be needed for the jobs of the future. The WEF says this and that. But if progressive education is feeding into the World Economic Forum, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think progressive education is feeding into a narrative which basically started with modern education. And that was that people were being schooled in order to support industry, in order to support a commercial direction. And so we do need to go back to understand that the beginnings of this system were very much created through force in the beginning, slavery, enclosures, and even genocide. And the values of the people, Western male primarily, it's a patriarchal system that started in Europe, that their values are very clearly racist, misogynist, anti-nature. But if we look at the development of this system and we look at what's happening today, it's not at all reasonable anymore to point to every white male as the enemy and every woman of color as the heroine. We now need to be understanding this as a system with very big teeth, but the teeth are only there because most people are not looking at the system. And so we are now talking about perhaps the biggest secret of all that is out in the open. So it's one of these things that, you know, not, not really a secret, and yet most people have never heard about it, not most people have never looked at it. And that is that governments around the world have been signing in black and white in treaties with teeth, economic teeth, that we will not do anything that might inhibit your profit-making potential. They are saying this to global corporations and banks in trade treaties. And so once we understand that, particularly after the Second World War, this system, which, as I said, started with these very negative values. Well, let's, actually, let me stop before and say that by the time of the Second World War, the, the, what had been built up was a world where very large corporations had immense power, but the nation state was still, uh, was still holding most of the real political power. After the Second World War, out of fear of having another world war, of having another depression, a lot of well-intentioned people supported the idea that we must globalize economic activity. We must ensure that every, every economic player is integrated. And so the World Bank, the IMF, and the GATT were set up, and the GATT is this general agreement on tariffs and trade. And unfortunately, as this development continued, there was some criticism of it, particularly the World Bank and the IMF, but very few eyes were looking at these trade treaties as drivers of an insane direction where governments were now becoming more and more subservient to global banks and corporations. And, but, and as, I, as of you know, about mid-80s, this took on the form of what was called globalization. And, and that meant that governments were literally telling their people, 
sorry, uh, you work it in America or England or Sweden. We are now looking after people in India and China because they're very poor and you shouldn't be selfish and complain about losing your job because this is going to raise all boats. When in fact, what it did was to allow giant corporations to use the cheapest labor possible and to amass more and more wealth and power. And that is the system we have today where our governments are subservient to giant corporations. And it's it's been an absolute disaster in all important areas. And for me, you know, the two areas I talk a lot about are how we how we grow our food, how we rear our food, and how we rear our children. And there I'm talking about everything from the health system, from you know, turning birth into a disease and doing absolutely horrendous things to this beautiful process of giving birth, to putting children into schools that are even more destructive than they were, certainly than they were 30 years ago, and subjecting children to intense pressure to literally be pitted against other countries as national leaders have said, we must make our educational system, you know, fit to compete globally. And that means pushing uh, essentially to train these poor children to suit the needs of global competitive corporations uh, in a rat race where there are really no winners. Um, so it's very dark and very um in a way depressing to look at it but for me it was so inspiring and so exciting when i first learned about these trade treaties because before that i had just been you know fighting this thing i call a western system and it was coming in everywhere and it just felt like no no place in the world was safe from it which is true but i didn't have a clarity about the areas we need to focus on if we if we want to change it. So that's what why it's actually very helpful to look at it. And I want to kind of go on a bit of a tangent here and, and look at these trade treaties and what's being done with governments. Now we'll talk about the sustainable development goals, which in many places are seen as, you know, the 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 place to go and uh, schools are aligning their curricula to it. If we look at it, quality education, which is SDG number four, doesn't once have the word nature in it. Um, there is talk you mentioned about food, there's zero hunger, and yet we have, what, 830 million people who are on the brink of starvation. I wonder what your thoughts are on the SDGs and whether or not, given the fact that countries, governments sign treaties with corporations, can they be trusted in any way, or is this just smoke and mirrors? Well, see, I don't think it's smoke and mirrors. I think it, for me, it's quite important that people realize that there are many well-intentioned people who still believe in this dominant thinking about development. They actually believe that they're encouraging greater sustainability. But the truth is that the UN is nothing but uh, appointees of national governments that are not representing their people. The classical picture everywhere now has been as parties or individuals seek election, they address people's needs, yes, jobs and environmental protection. And, and once in power, 
they're listening to the dictates of big money. And, you know, we see that in terms of lobbying and there's some eyes on that and addressing within the national arena the need to, to change the system where lobbyists are able to shape policy. But we really need to be looking at the bigger picture, I think, to have greater clarity about why things just seem to be going from bad to worse and why it is now, again, this is something that needs to be also clearly out there and talked about, which is that you look around the industrialized world particularly, but really all around the world, and you'll find that it's becoming harder and harder to put a government together. People are beginning to wake up to the fact that left and right has become meaningless, that on both left and right, the same policies have been pursued. And all the time, along with policies that the UN has been supporting and putting out there. So for instance, in the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, they have been actively pushing fossil fuel-based industrial agriculture on the world. And now it's become much more insidious because now the language is all about regenerative and biodiversity, about all the right language, but the practical application couldn't be more destructive, more insidiously destructive than, than before. And, and it's now with the language of carbon and the need for high tech, particularly the need for AI in every field and literally field out in the field and in every discipline. Um, and this romanticization of AI is in, in medicine, in agriculture, is uh, ensuring that the small and the ecological, the nature-based, the diverse, respectful of different climates, different ecosystems, different cultures, cannot survive. It's standardized monoculture, extremely capital and energy intensive. So even though we have all this verbiage about a Green New Deal, in actual fact, there's more fossil fuel extraction, there's fracking, and of course, nuclear power is included in renewables. So we're, we have to be really alert now to distinguish the worldview and the practical application of that worldview from really what most people want and the worldview and the application of the dominant system, which as I see it, it's, it really is, as I said before, it's not so much about smoke and mirrors. It's really about the fact that from the very bottom at the grassroots, if you look at hierarchies of power, to the top of the political and economic power structures, I would say the lack of the big picture means that people who are earning, well, earning, people who are speculating in the financial casino and getting million-dollar bonuses, you know, or people who are earning humongous salaries, they they have so, so little access to the big picture. And of course, they're not going to be looking for it. So it's really up to us. And I wouldn't say the you know, grassroots in the sense of the most marginalized, the most impoverished, but I would say those of us sort of in the middle ground who have a little bit of free time, maybe a little bit of extra money, that we can afford to step back, look at the bigger picture, and as quickly as possible, come together as a global community to represent 
the rights of nature and the rights of people as you know, completely interlinked. And so this goes a little bit back to what you were saying about people feeling that it's too big, I can't change the system by myself, but maybe through this network. And at the same time, you know, we, we can't all fix the ozone layer, but maybe we can work on things that are local. How, how does that, how do we work with these complementarities between our local action and the global network? Well, I think it's really important, again, first of all, that we have clarity about the different tasks and the different uh, goals and the timeline and the different agents. And so what we in Local Futures have always been encouraging is that, you know, the disseminating the big picture is primary. So I call that big picture activism. And that big picture then also calls for international collaboration. Ideally, it would be happening at the national level, at the government level. But from our point of view, we are now quite convinced it's not going to happen without movement building. So the first task is to build a movement that is globally aware, that's not arguing from only a national perspective. So it can't be um, accused of being right-wing and nationalist and so on. But it's the recognition that one of the first steps is to start a process of regulating global capital and corporations, global investments and global corporations. What's been going on is a process of deregulation, and we have to remember it's been accompanied by a process of regulating every business and every individual's activity within the national arena. So there the regulation extends right down to the local council level where you know, we try to do, you know, the tiniest little amendment in our house and we're policed by the local council. Our taxes are paying to police us. While at the global level, corporations are telling governments to regulate, to destroy small competitors and are and essentially giving our governments their marching orders. So this has got to be reversed if we have any, if we believe at all in any form of democracy. I don't think, you know, even the most self-respecting neoliberal capitalist would sit there and tell us that, no, we want private enterprise to be able to run the world and without any accountability, no visibility, no vote, nothing. I don't think anyone would, you know, owe up to that or want that. So... We need to start a process whereby we demand that our national governments start a process of regulation. And in order for that to be meaningful, it would need to have civic society at the table. Previously in the trade negotiations, it's corporations at the table, no representative of civic society virtually, and, and the national government representative. So... And that means there is a vision there where we're not saying that overnight we're going to shut down Coca-Cola or McDonald's or Monsanto. We're talking about, however, giving them a period whereby they can choose where to be located. They can split up, but then they will be gen you know, genuinely split up into different businesses that will be place-based, monitored, democratically accountable to different countries. So this is actually a process of localization, but it's a process that has to do with breaking up global monopolies to be place-based. So that's why it's quite, yeah, I still 
haven't found a better word than localization, but it's confusing because we are also at the same time saying that once we recognize what's going on, one of the first things that people might want to do is to connect in the local area, wherever they live, whether it's in the big city, whether it's in the countryside, collect, connect with like-minded individuals to create, to start creating community initiatives to strengthen the local economy. And when it comes to the really important things like how we care for our children and how we grow our food, there's so much that we can do at the community level. Um, we now have to be strategic about regulations and so on. But the for me, I'm I'm happy with what I've been trying to do these 45 years because I know I've helped to start a lot of farmers markets, a lot of local food initiatives, supported eco-villages, permaculture initiatives, and so on. And they bring real benefits very quickly. And that's also why I've, you know, I recommend people to start by connecting with some like-minded people where they live. Um, and and that it's quite important to do that with face-to-face. -face. Um, uh, you know, in other words, real place-based relationships, while of course also seeking out like-minded communities online. But it is that face-to-face -face connection. It's the practical help. It's being within reach when someone is ill, when a child needs babysitting, and particularly in actually starting things like new farmers markets or other cooperative shops, um, childcare, alternative schooling. There are now many people getting involved in setting up community schools. And there's more and more of that with a very conscious turning towards nature. Um, you know, the forest schools, the edible schoolyards, this, um, you know, there's so much happening at the grassroots in what I call, you know, sort of a worldwide bottom-up localization movement that is so exciting and so healing. It's healing to the people involved, but it's also healing just to know how much is happening. So that's why it's really, really important that the big picture that I'm talking about includes not just understanding how the dominant narrative is being shaped and by whom, but the big picture includes once you really get these lenses on to look out for the bottom-up grassroots initiatives at a global level, you will be really um, maybe not convinced that, uh, that neither nature nor human nature is doomed to go down the tubes the way the dominant narrative is telling us. Because I think more than anything, uh, one of the first false assumptions we need to, to you know, put to rest is that human beings by nature are greedy and aggressive. No, we allow the system to grow over the last few hundred words, years that imposed consumerism, created greed, and you know, through a multitude of ways, including schooling. Um, but it's really very inspiring when you see how much is happening at the grassroots. And and here there's a there's an inspiring paradox. And one is 
the fact that schools, I see so many conferences and, and thank goodness they're going away about the future of education, the future of education. And UNESCO released a report, the futures of education, which is already, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a uh, interesting and, and thoughtful uh, approach. But by looking at the future of education, it isn't stepping back far enough to see all the different forces and where education is embedded. So if we step back and we see the, the, the dominant narrative, the capitalist system, the, 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 the market, the trade, the relationships, the, the domination of nature, the whole thing, it's not just about education. So we have to connect beyond schools to other places. Now, the paradox here is that if we are able to see that we're connected to more than schools, at the local level, we can start reaching out and we can start doing more things within the schools to be really part of the community. That's what I'm, that's what I'm understanding from, from what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is also happening. And in fact, we have to really work actively at it because there have also been very sad consequences of the dominant system, which has led to so much alienation. And, you know, the typical picture of particularly men sitting alone in front of a computer screen, you know, has led to more and more social aberration, you know, including, of course, pedophilia and all kinds of, of um abusive behavior. And so I was so sad to see in England a few years ago that there had been some kind of scandal in a Steiner school. And now suddenly the Steiner schools weren't letting the parents onto the campus of the school. And so we have to be really guarding against allowing these very real problems from you know creating a response that's just going to make things worse because we really want to have the local community involved with the school we want the children to be involved in the local community and and um you know some beautiful projects too like actually here in the area where i live in australia a woman took the initiative to connect young parents and their children with elders in the community realizing that in this highly mobile world that people were, you know, the, the older people were not connected to their grandchildren and the younger people with young children didn't have their parents nearby. And so connecting people to create supportive community structures um, was a, a beautiful initiative. And then there were warnings that, no, no, this is too dangerous, you know, in this, in this age of pedophilia and so on. So I think we have to, um, of course, be aware and be, you know, uh, of course, uh, careful, but not losing our way out of out of fear and out of reaction to the to the the serious problems that have arisen because of this path. That we have to remember that that from the outset we're talking about by the path that literally physically removed us from nature, and and the clearest practical way to understand that is that people will move from rural livelihoods, from farming communities and human scale structures that they had often evolved over thousands of years to manage the water and the forest or the fish and the, the land that fed and clothed and housed them, the, the real economy on which they were dependent. They had experiential knowledge systems the systems where you could actually see the impact on the water and the trees. And once these forces that have grown into this extractive capitalist system took off, people were pushed into cities, 
where they had no longer any idea of who was actually running their lives. They didn't know the names of the people. There were these anonymous top-down forces. And now everybody else was an enemy. It was elbows scrabbling over scarcity, both in terms of food supply and jobs. And I, you know, I witnessed that firsthand in Ladakh and Bhutan, how that sudden, you know, essentially these were parts of the world that had not been colonized. And that was really important because it meant that there was no poverty, there was no unemployment. And now suddenly to see poverty created and simultaneously to see the divisiveness and the literally even violent conflict that sprang from that between groups that had lived side by side for generations without conflict, and then see simultaneously the you know, obvious, clear pollution, ill health, to see these multiple negative effects of this economic part. It made it so, so clear that we need to be moving in the opposite direction. And that means really a type of ruralization. Uh, it means beginning to think about what skills we would really need to have a better balance between urban and rural. It doesn't mean that everyone goes back to become a farmer, but it does mean that we're looking at a, a very different range of skills. And we need to be looking at who is creating the money that is steering the way, how is that happening? We need a democratic process to decide how much money is put in circulation. The money is not some kind of wealth that's just sitting there and that has its own limit. It's a political choice. Political choice, how much money circulates, who gets to have it. And we are not allowed to look at it that. We were told there's this budget and we've got this scarcity and now we've got to help the rich to get richer because we're going to have this trickle down, which has never worked. So it's remarkable that the dominant system is still allowed to continue. It won't, it won't last much longer, but I do worry about how much more damage it can create. So I don't think we should assume that the dominant system is just going to collapse of its own. So you, you mentioned ruralization. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to go back to the countryside and, 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 and farm, but, but what are some of these skills that you see that are now and in the future going to be important? Understanding that the present and the future, that there's no separation between the two. What are the skills that, that we need to think about? Well, I mean, the number one is really has to do with, with growing food and, and it's important to keep in mind that in our entire evolution, you know, for our, you know, out of a 24-hour time period, something like 23 hours and 50 seconds or something, we were all close to the source of our food, you know, whether we were growing, hunting, gathering, processing, you know, and then cooking and celebrating together. This We were all very close to that because we were close to the land that supported us. And it's quite important, too, to realize that in that world, we didn't need lots of people to manage the water. Managing the water was a subset of providing for our needs sustainably. And, and yes, there were structures where, where groups organized so that there might be certain people in charge of the irrigation and there might be other people in charge of particular skills connected with 
with the with the um, well the, all the different levels of the planting, the harvesting, the processing, and so on. But what I experienced in very ancient cultures like Ladakh and Bhutan was that they were making use of technologies that they could relatively easily build in their area, and the experts in those skills were were many not everybody there were actually blacksmiths also but using very simple methods with you know charcoal and a bit of metal but mainly wood you know wood uh, for the plow um wood for the water mill that would grind the grain um also simple things like what we don't remember i mean we don't know because we we don't put ourselves back in time like that but i was able to be, you know, on building sites. And actually, I often tell the story about how I wrote back to friends in Europe that summer. And I said, this summer was particularly enjoyable because there was construction going on on the house. And then when I was, I was writing that, I realized how funny that sounded. And it was because with the construction, you had such an optimum number of people for every task. And they were singing for every different task. So even while making the mud bricks, which was a very simple task that even children helped with, or just a wooden mold and, you know, ensuring that it was packed in fairly solidly, but just human labor and, you know, mixing the mud and so on. But it was all at a pace and with numbers of people. So it was the whole process was enjoyable. So even carrying the bricks up, to a higher level, you know, up to the third floor on the roof to build, you know, another room. There was a different type of singing for that. And at, and at the time I was writing that letter, the harvest was going on. And so out in the field, just outside the door, there was also three different types of singing. One for the threshing, singing to the animals that were going around a pole. Uh, another one for the actual cutting of the grain. And then there was whistling for winnowing. Um, and yeah, it was, and as it happens <laughs> at that particular day when I was writing that letter, there was also the harvest festival in the chapel upstairs in the house when the monks would come with these amazing instruments, you know, again, all quite simply made, you know, with shelves and some metal also, but, you know, beautiful chanting and music from that and this is all going on at the same time and just this sort of human scale work and emitting sounds that were all joyous and and healthy for the ear um and i guess the key thing about all of it was having the right number of people to every task and it was one of the lessons i tried to share well i just haven't written that much but i I do in my book, Ancient Futures, and I do talk about this, that I think a lot of the Westerners who wanted to go back to the land and wanted, as so many people dream of, living with more community, especially intergenerational, you know, how many grandparents wouldn't love to live on land where their grandchildren are nearby and and where there are animals and, and you're connected to nature and to other people. But what happened is so many Westerners thought they could just move out, you know, one family. And it's just, is never how we survived. We weren't self-reliant. 
not in some nuclear family or even an extended family. It wasn't one family. It was hundreds of people, you know, sort of minimum, probably a hundred. So to create enough support so that all these tasks of growing, building, and so on. And, and let's also remember, you know, that building houses and so on, that wasn't happening every year or anything. But there were usually repairs because with these natural materials, you often had to replace some wood or do some plastering again. And I do want to add that my husband and I, having lived in Ladakh for half of the year, found it very difficult to live in the typical Western city environment. I had lived in Paris before I went to Ladakh and quite loved that city, but still I always you know, love nature. And once you'd lived in a culture that was more human scale, slower pace, more connected to nature, it was difficult. So we looked, we searched in Europe where we found one of the least developed areas, and that was in southern Spain. And there too, for all of the 80s, we lived in a rural community. And there, a lot of people who had moved to live on the land were actually not not Spanish. They came from around the world. Um, and the, the villagers themselves were beginning to leave the land. But even in the 80s, they still had so many elements of a more nature-based, a more community-based way of living. They still were producing most of their food in a village of about probably 500, maybe a thousand, no, probably about a thousand people. Um, you know, the olives, the vegetables, the meat from pigs and goats, um, some cattle, you know, and making cheese, um, growing vegetables, olives, uh, citrus trees. And they had these little black pigs that would roam in the cork oak forest, which was a, a natural monoculture. And... Um, and I saw how in the 80s, as the modern, this later phase of globalization took off, how this changed and how people were being pulled off the land and the supermarket comes in and and suddenly, you know, you have mountains of plastic burning uh, and, a, yeah, a, a, a very, very different culture emerging. Listen, I, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I'll ask you uh, one more question, um, and that was, what, what's on your horizon? What are some of the plans you might have, some of the thinking, the feelings that you might have moving forward? Well, I, one of the things that's on our plan now is to try to have a big event in England next year at the end of September, the last week of September. I hope you would want to come and join because we're hoping to have a bit of a of a meeting of the localization tribe from around the world. And there are lots of people that belong to that who don't necessarily use the language. It's really, it's all those who are striving to get back to a more earth-centered way of life uh, and who understand that that involves some degree of decentralization at least. Um, and so it involves, you know, sort of from the permaculture movement, uh, there's there's really a, a worldwide local food movement, which we have often helped to uh, stimulate or catalyze, but millions of things happening without that. And then, you know, the eco-village movement, there's the transition town movement, there's now this bioregional movement that's also quite broad. 
So anyway, we hope to have as many members from those communities as possible and to draw attention to the fact that when you do put on those lenses and look at the global trajectory versus the local, you'll see a pattern that the globalizing path is imposing monoculture. And it, it's deadly. It's deadly. It's it's linked to a knowledge system that does not recognize that we are becomings rather than beings, that doesn't recognize process and inextricable interdependence and inevitable change. And maybe this is one of the most important things about the worldview that we really need to shout on the mountaintops. And that is that many people in the West who woke up to these fundamental teachings that have been part of virtually all indigenous cultures, but also all wisdom traditions, you know, the more perennial philosophies and the foundation, you know, the mystical center of virtually every religion has understood that truth of the inextricable oneness of life, of the inextricable and inevitable you know, web of relationships constantly changing and the need to accept that, the need to see these primary laws of the universe and that when we affect one bit over here, we're ultimately affecting the whole. Now, what the dominant system is based on is a complete rejection of that. So what we're dealing with today is very rapid change, but it's change that's emanating from a absolute hubris, that thought that we could hold static, that we could control, that we could impose monoculture on this living fabric where not only everything is changing, but it's unique from moment to moment. Every cell, every cell that, that lives is unique. Now, what's been built up is a system that ignores those realities and it is imposing a deadly monoculture and creating chaos. However, many people who've woken up to the spiritual teachings have been taught to accept change. So very often they say, okay, so now that new, new superhighway is going to be destroying those towns, it's going to be destroying those farms. Well, have to accept change. So this is where a discussion of the worldview is incredibly important. And we hope to contribute to that. And we hope to contribute also to the paradox that it's in developing deep experiential ways of being and living in specific living natural ecosystem that we create the expanded self that is secure and able to go with the flow, that is able to, to become rather than be, rather than hold on to static uh, visions of self and other and of life. So the paradox is that we need that deeply localized um, way of living in order to develop the, the broad, wide, expanded, open-ended self uh, and that and that even applies to communities, because the, from from our experience, another really important um, lesson that I learned in Ladakh is that absolutely fundamental to that expanded self is intergenerational community. 
um, and it's almost well, it's, it's it's essential. It is the process whereby the child develops that sense of being heard and seen in a way that allows for a relaxed and open um, and caring and and uh, loving uh, being when our children in the nuclear family, you know, shaped by very intense, very unnatural relationships, develop, uh, uh, essentially they're deprived, they become neurotically dependent on affirmation because they haven't had the sort of affirmation that they need as children. So that's why the localization movement uh, that encourages the building of those community relationships is so important. And I do actually want to, when you ask me about projects, let's maybe maybe don't have this bit of it, but I think it would be good if you could include that we're planning this big get-together at the end of September. It's going to be uh, with the help of the former mayor of Bristol, which is a town of 650,000 people, and we'll be having events for a whole week. And we hope that it will be a, um, a way of raising awareness, hopefully getting a bit into the mainstream media, but who knows. Uh, and we're also continuing to make films that we hope people will use. We haven't focused on the highest quality, uh, but I would urge people to look at both the economics of happiness and planet local. And I think people often are not aware of how rare it is to have uh, uh, a film or you know a message in an hour that covers this bigger picture that shows the connections. Um, so I think they are very useful tools and they've helped to uh, stimulate and catalyze real action on the ground. And so I think people who are interested in anything I'm saying, they should please think about doing a community showing of one of our films, they're for free. And it can be a way of identifying some like-minded people in your area, because it is really, really important to change the I to a we. And already that so changes the whole narrative in our heads. It's, it's incredibly nurturing and empowering. And the, and the films can be found on your website as well as YouTube, or is the easiest way? Yeah, yeah, they can be found on YouTube and on our website. But it would be, I think people might be interested to go to our website, and I'd love them to sign up for our email updates, which come out every two weeks, uh, where they'll get lots more information, other films from other groups. And... Again, what's unusual about our work is that we are, uh, well, I think actually unique in promoting localization globally and doing that from global experience, from global grassroots experience. We have networks and work with people in 30 countries. Almost all our materials have been translated into multiple languages. I think a total of more than 50 languages between various my book, Ancient Futures, and the film, Ancient Futures, were translated into more than 40 languages and, um, and have wonderfully have supported and strengthened this movement towards genuine 
you know, earth-based thriving. You know, we're talking, we're not just talking about resilience or simplicity. I don't like those terms. I really, really want people to know that there is a way forward that is within our reach where we can feel much happier, where we can feel certainly become healthier, both physically and emotionally. And it is doable. It's within our grasp. And the event in Bristol will also be on your website, I imagine, in the newsletters. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really want to thank you. Such inspiring, inspiring words and thinking and, and the feeling that you arouse as well. Um, and, and, and in terms of the, the many, many ways we can approach your words for different areas, but they all just come into one. So thank you so much. Wow, thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News, and thank you for listening. You can check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.design and Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. And last but not least, one last URL, the Wiser Framework can be found on www.wisr.life. Leave us a comment, www.coconut-thinking.design. Okay, maybe that wasn't the last URL. We always look forward to hearing from you. Check us out on LinkedIn. In the meantime, we will see you soon. Bye-bye.